Father, we are so grateful for the Word of God that we are now about to read. Thank you that our ears, connected to our brain, wired spiritually to our heart, Lord, that you are creating faith, Lord, in a world where disasters and disappointments and uncertainties, frustrations, Lord, challenge this whole idea of believing. Thank you for the unwavering, unchanging reality of your goodness as seen in Jesus Christ. He is beautiful. His mercy is beautiful, his power, his miracles, his wisdom, his teaching, his friendship with sinners, his love for his disciples. I thank you for the constant North Star love of Jesus. So today I pray that you will use the word of God. You will use the mighty word atonement to increase our confidence in Jesus. I pray for someone who does not have faith today that in the next 30 minutes you will birth faith, change the trajectory of their life from no faith to full faith, from doubts to assurance, from emptiness to purpose, from sorrow to peace. Would you do that, oh God? Would you do that here and around the world, among the impoverished, the unreached, the up and out, the down and out, educated, uneducated, free, not free, hungry, well-fed, but all spiritually with the same need to be right with God. Might they hear truth and know God through Christ. It's in his name that I joyfully, gladly, thankfully pray for my certainty and ours. Amen. Several years ago on a beautiful June day, in the Indian state of Andhra Pradesh, I was traveling south on National Highway 16 from the naval port of Vishakhapatnam to the sprawling city of Hyderabad. And having ridden on so many unpaved or poorly paved or not paved at all roads in India, I was shocked by the near-perfect quality of this road. And Therefore, I was not surprised at one particular point in our journey when we came to a toll booth that required us to pay for the very nice road that we had just ridden on. But what did surprise me, not that we would have to pay, but was the question that our driver asked the guard who raised and lowered the gate to allow traffic to pass on. As we pulled up to the toll booth, the driver asked the, the guardsman, how much is the atonement? And in that moment, I wanted to just stop everything and just ask that driver, do you know what you just asked? Do you just ask, you didn't know you just asked the most important question in all of history. You asked the one question, you, you work for Hindu businessmen who, who own this fleet of cars that you're driving 
And even though you're a Hindu, you ask a question using a word that is the key word that covers all of the Judeo-Christian theology for the past 6,000 years. Do you know what you just asked? But I didn't stop. Nothing dramatic happened that day. He asked how much is the atonement. The, the guardsman told him and the driver paid him. Though I had never heard the word atonement used in a business transaction before, I knew exactly what the driver was asking. How much is the payment? How much do I owe you? What do I have to give you in order for me to go past you and travel onward to my definition? Last week in our, our study, we focused on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Please work or computer people help me. <clears throat> for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. So I tried last week in our opening time together in this beautiful building that faith all by itself is what saves you. We celebrate that, faith alone. What I want to do today is I want to go back to a verse that I slid in with that, Ephesians 2.89. I alluded to it, but today I want to center on it because I did say last week that faith alone saves you. But I used another verse last week to say your faith must be in something. Not just faith, but faith in something. And I said it must be in the atoning power of Jesus Christ. And I did that in Romans 3.25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by Faith. So what I want to do this Sunday morning is I want to strengthen the faith that we tried to develop last week. I want to strengthen your faith by, by telling you how confident you should be that your, your faith is grounded in something certain. There's no, there's no guessing about it because an atonement, a payment has been made. Now this concept of atonement, the suffering, the shedding of the blood of Christ... Atonement that God requires, blood, is not new to the New Testament. It's not like people change the rules mid-Bible and say, we're just going to start. It's, an, it's a Bible word that God began preaching sermons on from the beginning. Leviticus chapter 5 says, when anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess in what way he has sinned. And as a penalty for the sin he's committed, he must bring to the Lord a female lamb or a goat from the flock as a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for a sin. So over a hundred times in the Old Testament, long before we get the New Testament, God began talking and telling us, when you sin against me, I'm going to require a certain payment before the gate comes up and you can continue to know me. I require payment, atonement of a certain type. So throughout the Bible, we see that God says when we sin against him, he's only satisfied when a certain type of payment is, is made. Now, because this is the most important question in life, what is this payment that God requires? I'm absolutely shocked that so few people stop to really ask, what is the atonement? 
Not many people say, what is the payment that God requires? People of all backgrounds and educations and race and gender, they seem to be too busy to stop and say, what is the payment that God requires for sin to be forgiven? And it's packed with eternal ramifications, how you answer what is the atonement. And so they just handle it with their best guess. They just guess, well, I think I know what will atone for my sin. On March 17th, 2018, this is the question I was trying to get at. How much is the atonement? What do I have to do in order for my life to be, to be right with God? March 17th, 2008, Elliot Spitzer resigned as governor of New York. It had been discovered that he was a long-standing client of a prostitution ring. Sort of shocking because he had won the governorship on a platform of anti-corruption in 2006 and a fierce commitment to clean up politics. <clears throat> I don't highlight this story this morning because saying uh, I'm incapable or we are incapable of of such sin. Every man is capable. Every man is mentally culpable already of such sin, immorality. But what I'm shocked by is the tragic theological error that came out of his mouth when he stood before the news media in describing what he was going to do post-sin Post fell. So his announcement to the media lasted 144 seconds when he described what was going to happen next. And this was just one brief line from his news conference. He said, In the past few days, I have begun to atone for my private. Failings. Now, just a moment ago, I said the word atonement is reserved for what God requires of a man when God is offended or when man fails God. So, Elliot Spencer said, I've begun to make that payment. It's a very interesting assessment of his capability of such a payment. So, he's saying, as he stood in those 144 seconds at his news conference, I feel personal remorse. I'm beginning to go after family reconciliation, holding this news conference, and therefore I'm beginning to atone, make payment. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm watching the news conference, already I know that he's guilty of 19 million and four sins. 19 million would be the number of people who live in New York State. Four would be the members of his family. He's guilty of 19 million and four breaches of trust, not to mention God. And so he's saying, I've atoned or I am atoning for what I've done. Elliot Spitzer is not the first governor to try to say, I've atoned for failure while I'm in office. The first governor that I know to do that was Governor Pilate in the time of Jesus Christ. 
when the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus Christ and wanted to have him killed just days before his crucifixion, they brought him to a governor, Pontius Pilate. The Jews did not have a law that allowed them to kill Christ, the, the novel new religious teacher on the scene claiming to be God. So they brought him to Governor Pilate and said, would you sentence him to death? And so Pilate listens to their case and Pilate responds in Luke 23, 4, I find no basis for a charge against this man. So, first declaration, Jesus is innocent. But Pilate hears that Herod Antipas is in town, and he, he knows that Jesus is from Galilee. Herod Antipas rules over Galilee. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, who's in Jerusalem, because he really oversees the Galilean district. Herod Antipas listens to his case. He finds that Jesus is innocent. He sends Jesus back to Herod. So here's Herod's second report to the religious leaders. Luke 23, 14. This is second report. I have examined him in your presence, found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. And you can see my yellow reference down there. A third time, um, Pilate will tell the religious leaders, Jesus Christ is not guilty, not worthy of death. But before he says that, before he says that, we have a very interesting political situation because politicians are very good at working the crowd. So he does. Matthew 26. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? So, so this is absolute politics at his best. Pilate didn't want to make the decision. He wanted the people to make the decision, so it wouldn't look like he made the decision, even though he was about to make the decision. So he gives them the decision in their own hands. Now, there is one more piece of information that, so you can understand who is this Barabbas guy, and that's found in Luke 23, 19. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. So he's trading an innocent Christ, son of God, sinless. Nobody can convict him of anything wrong for a murder, and he throws this out to the crowd. Then there's one more interesting ingredient in all of this. Is Jesus guilty? Should he be condemned? Should Pilate condemn him to death? He gets a visit. Pilate gets a visit by his wife, Matthew 26, 19. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, Jesus, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Can you imagine what was going through Pilate's body at this time? I mean, like loss of strength in his legs, heart rate high, stomach churning, cramping. So now he's got 
a terrible situation on his hand because he's created a riot among the people because he gave them their choice. Matthew 26, 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. Now, as history goes on and tells us, church history and secular history, Pilate gave in their demands and had Jesus crucified. And all of this is important for this reason. On three occasions, it was told to Pilate by his own conscience and his own investigation, Jesus Christ is innocent. He had another political figure, Herod Antipas, say he's innocent. And his wife, this is fifth, his wife told him the man is innocent. And he condemned an innocent man to die. That's a lot of violation of one's conscience. That's a lot of guilt. How does he handle all of this guilt? When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, Matthew 26, 14, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. Despite all of these impossible to miss, easy to read signs that Jesus Christ is innocent, he condemned him to death and decided he would atone for his guilt through religious ceremony. So already in my message today, we've seen two men, two governors, handling guilt through interesting ways. Governor Spitzer in New York handled his guilt through public sorrow. Governor Pilate handles his guilt through religious ceremony literal ceremonial washing. And so all over the world, people have to decide, how am I going to atone for my sins? How am I going to atone for my guilt? And the choice, that the preferable choice for most people is to do enough good to outweigh their not good and since humans are in charge of this, they tend to always rule in favor of their level of goodness they choose. In other words, you're always going to give yourself the benefit of the doubt that I've done enough good, now I outweigh my bad. The most interesting thing that I read about this whole Governor Spitzer thing was an interview by friends of the prostitute that brought the governor down and wrecked his family. Even though he did, he wrecked his family, he wrecked his governorship, but she did play a role. So, a friend of her said, she's a good woman. I was eating with her one evening in a steakhouse, and she didn't finish her steakhouse and asked that it be wrapped up in a bag. And when we left the restaurant, she took it and gave it to a homeless person. She is a good woman. So she can atone for her lifestyle through living this and doing that. I can atone for not good choices by later making these good choices. I'm not highlighting any of the people in this message to mock their behavior. What I'm doing is cautioning all of us to avoid a theological trap of coming up, contriving our own 
theological system of atonement based on mere guessing of what good will make up for our bad. So without question in life, the greatest problem the world faces today is to answer the question of how much is the atonement? How can I satisfy God so that he will forgive my sins? Is it shedding enough tears, engaging in enough religious rituals, doing enough good deeds, or to say it like this, how much sorrow is enough sorrow? How much ritual is enough ritual? How much good is good enough? Now, here's the assumption of most people in the world. Heaven is good. Good people go to heaven. I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. Let's hear that again because this is a universal assumption throughout the world. Heaven is good. Good people go to heaven. I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. Earlier this week, I had the privilege of dialoguing with someone of another religious belief. And so I asked him. We got to share. He asked me, what is your belief? I shared, which I would do pretty much every Sunday morning, sort of atonement. Christ's blood, Christ's life, death, resurrection talk. He shared, he said, my religious belief is that God has placed us here on earth for a test, and if we pass the test, or as we pass the test, we are accepted into heaven. That was his belief. We're here on earth to be tested. If we pass the test, we are admitted into heaven. Well, that sounds, he made it sound great. I was just I, I w because of the length of the night and others that were involved, I didn't get to ask the question. My next question was, uh, how many tests do you have to pass? And what happens if, and how many tests can you fail? That'd be a very important question for those of you trying to go to heaven by your goodness. How many tests do you have to pass and how many tests can you fail and still remain a good person. So it sounds very comforting to say that good people go to heaven until you ask somebody, can you qualify good? Nobody can do that. I've never met anybody that says, I have a definition of good. So they say they don't really know. So they're banking all of their eternal hope on a definition they've never been able to define. If they were to really stop and consider what they were saying, they couldn't live with that. So instead of not living with it, they don't, add, they don't consider that. They don't say, I don't, know what the, I don't know what the mark is. If I knew what the mark was and I knew that I might not be hitting the mark, my pride will not let me admit I'm not hitting the Pride will not let me hit, admit that. Nor will fear allow me. What if I said, I know what the mark is, I'm not meeting the mark? Then that's going to either produce fear or it's going to hurt my feelings. So to avoid thinking about that, people come up with four erroneous beliefs about good. Universal misconceptions. Number one, some uncertainty. They say some uncertainty about what is good will always exist. In other words, people say, 
nobody really knows what is good, and it's okay for uncertainty to exist. And initially, this sounds great. But who can be accountable for something they don't know? That's the problem with this. It's like if you're a student at a university and a professor walks in on day one and says there are no homework assignments, there will be no quizzes during the semester, there's just going to be a final exam and whether or not you pass this course depends on how well you do on the final and then you ask what's the final about and the professor says I'm not going to tell you. What would you think about that professor? You would say he's not good. So, if God doesn't make clear to us what the level of goodness is, and if this is true, it remains uncertain our whole life, then He is not good. Let's say it like this in in a quote. If heaven depends on our goodness, yet we live in fear because God hasn't made it clear how good is good enough, then God is not good and heaven is not desirable. Point number two, universal misconceptions. Our hearts can lead us to what is good. Well, on the surface, this sounds right until you try to find a group of people whose hearts agree with the same standard. Your heart knows what is good, is what people would say. Well, here's the problem with that. If there is an internal mechanism inside me that tells me what the standard of goodness is, Can I not assume there's an internal mechanism within you that would also tell you what goodness is? So if there's an internal internal mechanism within me that I can trust, it tells me what level of goodness is. You say, yeah, Richard, it's right. Your heart's right. But your heart's saying something different than I would say the internal mechanism in one of us is wrong. And if one of our internal mechanisms is wrong, I would say the heart is not trustworthy. Our hearts cannot be trusted to tell us what is good. If the internal mechanisms are telling us different things about what is good. The bottom line is unless all people and cultures agree on what is right, we cannot claim that the human heart accurately tells us what is good. And actually, we don't even need each other to tell us that our internal mechanism is wrong. Take, for example, a 40-year-old father who spent his life in college, a 40, 45-year-old father, spent his life in college getting wasted, being with a lot of women in his college days. And now his 18-year-old daughter is about to go to college Does he want her to go down the same path that he did in college? Does he want men to treat his daughter as he treated other men's daughters in college? Well, why all of a sudden, if the internal mechanism of the heart can be trusted, why did his internal mechanism change? It can't be trusted because it always changes. Point number three, misconception, religion will tell us what is good. Really? Well, which one? 
Is it the one that says I should pray five times a day toward Mecca? Or is it the religion that says I should pray to Mary? Wouldn't it be cool if Mary lived in Mecca? It's convenient to say that all religions say the same thing until you begin to read them and say, they're not even close on the giant religious map. They're all over the place. They're not even close to saying the same thing. They don't just say different things. They say opposing things. Now, even if I were to find a religion that tells me what is good... Let's say I find a religion that tells me what is good. What happens when I don't do the good that that religion told me to do? So I finally find the religion that tells me what is good. What happens when I don't do it? In other words, let's say I find a religion that's, that's made up of these ten commandments. And I don't obey all the commandments all the time which is likely going to happen since I really can't even name them all right now. But I know one of them, don't lie. And I know I've done that to a degree on several occasions to save my skin or to avoid an uncomfortable situation. What's going to happen on breaking that ten commandment or that one of the ten So we say, well, God's going to grave on the curve on that. He's going to cut me some slack. Well, I want to know what is God's curve. Is it 86% of the Ten Commandments? Is it 73%? Is it 59%? Then if that's true, then I have, then I've, I've really got another problem. If God ignores my weaknesses, if God ignores my weaknesses, then I have to wonder how serious is God about goodness? I don't think he's as serious anymore. He just because he just pushes it all away when goodness doesn't occur. And if God is not that serious about goodness, then he himself is probably not very good. And then he's going to admit me into a heaven where there's a 51% success rate of goodness, 49% success rate of badness, and then all of a sudden heaven becomes another earth, not fun. Number four, trying your best is what goodness is all about. Misconception number four. Because this philosophy is embraced by many people, and it's repeated so many times, people begin to believe you know, if you repeat something enough, you know, people say, well, it, it must be true because it sounds right. It must be right. It must be, it must be one of like the 11th commandment. They, you know, got added later. So here's two problems with that, with trying your best is, is what goodness is all about. Here's problem number one. It's your, your, the false belief that my best is the best. If we went to a golf course today and, uh, and, and I was hitting a driver, I would likely hit the ball okay. 
I wouldn't embarrass myself. I would hit, strike the ball fairly well. And so I could say I'm the best golfer there is because I'm just there by myself. And I, and I, and I hit it, and I hit it hard, and it looked good. You know, what if Dustin Johnson were there, Brooks Kepka were there, and Phil Mickelson were there? Now there's a new standard of what is the best. So when I say I'm trying my best, I'm assuming that my best is the best. That's, what's the problem with that? There's, your best is not the best. There is a better standard always than your best. Your best is only what you know to be, what you are doing. The second problem with this philosophy is even if it is your, you know, you are doing your best, you don't always do your best. So let's say this is the standard of getting to heaven is I do my best. Well, if you don't always do your best, then you failed your own standard and you can't go to heaven because you failed your own standard for heaven. I'm not even, you're condemning yourself. Because you said the standard for heaven is do your best. Well, you didn't do it. You didn't even live up to your own standard. Do you know why these why people embrace these four views of goodness? Because it's the only way they can cope. If heaven depends on some level of goodness, and yet I begin to doubt my goodness, my heart will be filled with despair. And this is why the religious leaders killed Jesus Christ. He sent them into despair. You can read that in Matthew chapter 5. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. These guys were experts in their own minds in goodness. And Jesus said, you're not good enough. And for that, they killed him. And not only does Jesus say that, the entire New Testament says it, as we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. No one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who is good enough. And this is what makes God so good. He walks into the classroom at the beginning of the semester and tells you that the year-end exam, that the way to pass the exam and to enter Pass the test, pass the class, enter his heaven. I want to tell you, on day one, at the end of your life, the test is not going to be about your goodness. Don't rely on your goodness. Don't try to get into my heaven based on your goodness. And God is so good that he tells us, he sets us up not to fail by telling us at the beginning of the class, you are not good enough to get into heaven. Well, this raises a question. If good people don't get into heaven, then who does? That's an easy one to answer. Bad people. If good people don't go to heaven, then who does? Bad people. Bad people who receive the goodness of Jesus. And that was the point of my verse last week in Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Did you not just, do you not just love that verse? It just reeks of gift. It just, it just the aroma of gift. 
Whenever somebody says they're spiritual but not Christian, what they're saying is they reject faith and they are going after a religion of self-reliance. Let me give you the, the, a definition that distinguishes cultural salvation and biblical salvation. Biblical salvation is always a gift that glorifies God for his goodness. Cultural salvation always focuses on human effort that boasts in its ability to reach, reach its religious goals. When Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, two criminals were crucified with him. They had both done equally bad things. One of them was mocking Jesus, and the other was mocking the criminal who was mocking Jesus. Let's read about that. Luke 23, but the other criminal rebuked the cynical criminal. So the Two criminals, the other criminal rebuked the cynical. Don't you fear God? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he breaks out with the most audacious question that anyone has ever asked Jesus. Then he said, Jesus, would you remember me today when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. The reason why that man went to heaven that day is because he forfeited all self-reliance and put his faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Governor Spitzer can your sin be atoned for? Yes, but not by you, not by your tears, not by your repayment, not by your words, but by your faith in Christ. Back to where we started. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of payment. That's what I want you to leave with today. Atonement, payment. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, belief, trust. Let me close with this. Everybody in this room is in the same boat. We're all the same in this room in one sense. We want to be pleasing to God. But there's one thing that separates us. If you're coming on works today, if you're coming in this room trying to, trying to, trying to know God through works then here's what separates you and me. You never know whether or not you live in certainty 24 hours a day. Have I done enough? The, one, the reason I love this verse, absolute certainty. God required certain payment for sin to be forgiven and then made the payment. He is pleased with the payment of Christ's blood, and he's pleased with anybody who believes in that blood. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're pleased today with all those who are now trusting, believing, clinging, to Jesus, would you help someone today, God, release the grip of self-reliance, release the grip of guilt, release the grip of self-effort,
Release the grip of condemnation. Release the grip of performance. And just return to faith in Christ. Father, would you help them love the atoning, full payment, blood, suffering, life, death, resurrection of Jesus? Would he become more dear? Father, would you produce by the power of the Spirit that we would cherish our Lord Jesus Christ? We would cherish your holiness, God, that you demanded payment and you provided payment so the guard gate can be opened and we can travel on a highway of holiness from earth to heaven. We'll be admitted into gates of splendor. We'll have access to the city of God. We will see infinite beauty because our sins will have been atoned for. Thank you, God, for atoning for all past, present, future sins through Christ. Thank you for making a way through the atoning words, the atoning deeds, the atoning thoughts, the atoning touch, the atoning heartache, the atoning loneliness, the atoning death, the atoning rising, the atoning ascending, and the atoning returning of Jesus Christ. His atonement is everything. And we trust in nothing but the atonement that satisfies you and cleanses us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.